that Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. And that's our hope, that as we engage with these meditations, this place might become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place Podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. My name is Mike Young, and I'm glad you've chosen to join us on the podcast today. My preaching professor in seminary was Dr. Jimmy Nelson, and he had a line that he would deliver to attempt to instill some humility in the room full of arrogant future preachers. With a twinkle in his eye, he would say, if all of the preachers and all of the trash collectors go on strike, one of these group's services will most certainly be the first one to be missed. And it will not be you preachers. We all giggled because we knew it was true. There are a lot of things that we have missed during this time of the pandemic. And when we start to look at the lists of, quote, essential services or workers, we begin to get a sense of the things that we truly value, particularly in this time of social distancing and the pandemic. It was interesting to me how it told the story of the things that we value, the things that we don't want to live without. Many of the people employed in these services seem to have some of the lower salaries. Many of them were minimum wage jobs or small wages plus tips. I wonder why that is. How do we determine the value of something or of someone? One of the big crises that we've been able to live through as we move from this past year into the new year is the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. We've seen the videos early on of people filling grocery carts with it at the big discount stores. And just about every time we went to the store, at least I would see someone looking longingly down the empty aisle where there was once stacks and stacks of it. I mean, there were other items in the store found in great abundance. But hand sanitizer and TP? Very scarce. It might be a trite way to introduce our meditation for today, but it's interesting to me how the value of something can change. Sometimes the mere perception that we have of something can change its value. And it can change the way we live and walk in our world. This is a message about that. Dr. Taylor gave this sermon at First Baptist Church of Murfreesboro, Tennessee in May of 2019. Until the Coming of the Rains by Dr. Larry Taylor. Our pastor always gives a gracious thanks to the musicians and others for their stewardship of time and talent in the worship service. And this morning I'd like to add my thanks to his and uh, 
express appreciation for all who have participated this morning. Now the scripture reading is found in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. That's on page 282 in the pulpit, the Pew Bibles. Avail yourself of one of those if you'd like. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Galead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and dwelt by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there, gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar, and a little oil in a cruise. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Fear not, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards... Make for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal shall not be spent, and the cruise of oil shall not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah had said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of the meal was not spent, neither did the cruise of the oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. May God bless this reading of his word. The story invites us to imagine life at the margins, 
It's a story about extremities and scarcity. Just consider for a moment the dimensions of desperation in this account. The context is drought, massive, widespread drought. In a land utterly dependent on seasonal rains, there's been no rain for many years. The earth's surface is cracked and parched. Carcasses of dead animals lie in the fields. The earth cries out for water, but the rains do not come. The drought has been brought on by a showdown between the gods, Yahweh, God of Israel, and Baal, the fertility god of the Phoenicians. Because Yahweh is ignored and his mercies taken for granted, the rains have stopped coming. The people look to Baal for water. After all, Baal is the god of soil and fertility, but the rains do not come. The mouth is dry and the skin cracks, the dust devils dance in the countryside, and the wind keeps time. It's a scene of complete desperation as the drought in the earth corresponds to the drought in people's hearts. Nature and spirit echo one another. It's what literature calls a pathetic fallacy, dry the land, drier still the soul. This is a battle for the hearts and minds of people who are confused about their God. And with each passing day, the circumstances of life become still more desperate. Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann says, The Bible is the story of the battle between abundance and scarcity. The narrative of abundance and the narrative of scarcity run on parallel tracks throughout the scripture. Genesis begins in abundance, a lush garden, green and fertile, creation, the gift that keeps on giving. But a few chapters later, famine and scarcity send Jacob's sons to Egypt in search of food. The next crisis on our planet may not be what we suspect at all, Years ago, an Israeli guide told me that the next war in the Middle East may well be over water. One half of the world's population is now without drinkable water. Our story from Scripture becomes contemporary as we face the prospects of not enough water. Drought has vast metaphorical connotations and frames our story from Scripture as well as our story on today's planet Earth. But this biblical story that I've read is also bracketed by the word of the Lord, and a tension is introduced between the drought on one hand and the word of the Lord on the other. The word of the Lord had come to the prophet Elijah. We're introduced to Elijah without any warning, he appears out of the shimmering, dusty heat of the desert. He stands before King Ahab of Israel to announce the coming drought. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord is introduced as the prime mover in the story. 
Next, it's the word of the Lord that warns Elijah to flee back to the desert where God has provided him a safe place by a running brook and where ravens bring him food. This detail is an irony in itself because ravens are notoriously voracious, that they become the instruments of sustenance during drought and famine further underlines the gracious provision of Elijah's God. When the book dried up, the word of the Lord came to Elijah again. God is active through his word in every phase of this story of human desperation. W.T. Connor, theologian of the Southwest, said, God will take care of his prophets even if he has to put his angels on half rations. This time, the word of the Lord directs Elijah to go to a village named Zarephath near Sidon, the other side of the map from east of Jordan. More irony because this is Phoenician country where Jezebel rules. Her very name is synonymous with evil. She's Ahab's wife. She is a Phoenician princess and a devotee of the worship of Baal. She is a sleek feline of the desert. God sends his prophet into the very jaws of the tigress, and the suspense is multiplied. In contemporary vernacular, we'd say God pushes the envelope. Now, in the little village of Zarephath, there lives a widow, a widow to whom God has been speaking. She, too, is living on the edge, on the margins of existence. Things are desperate for her like everyone else. She barely manages to keep body and soul together for herself and her son. This poor woman is defenseless against the cruel conditions of the time. No man provides for her needs. Widows were the most vulnerable segment of the population. Senior adulthood was a fearsome prospect for a widow. There was no safety net for women and children who lost their protector. The desperation of this story grows tighter with each passing sentence. And it is to this widow that God sends his prophet Elijah. But God has preceded the prophet. God always makes the first move. Any move we make toward God is a response. God has been speaking to this woman already instructing her to take care of a stranger that she's going to meet very soon. God always precedes his messengers and whispers through creation and conscience into the ears of people who live in places with no other witness. God has finally left no one without some witness to himself. God is in everyone's experience. Missionaries report that even when they go into the most remote places on earth, they encounter people who already have a concept of God. Everywhere, it seems, there is an altar to an unknown God. And the missionaries arrive to name that God and to give the whispered word flesh, and the name they speak is Jesus. When Elijah first sees this widow at the city gate, she's gathering sticks, twigs and stubble for a small fire. Her lips move in silent prayer. So the prophet joins the conversation already in progress between this woman and God and says to her, 
Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. If for a moment the delicate irony of this story is forgotten, we'll hear the prophet as crass and insensitive. 1,100 years later, another Jewish prophet would sit by Jacob's well and ask a Samaritan woman, give me a drink. The New Testament story from John echoes the Old Testament story of the widow. And it's a universal story. In a world where everyone is thirsty, and in a world of desperation and scarcity, thirst takes on the same metaphorical properties as drought. Now at this particular moment, you recall, water is worth more than gold. Each drop is measured more precious than rubies. This total stranger, a man, appears out of nowhere and asks the widow for a little water, asks her for the last hold that she has on life. And to our surprise, the widow turns to go into the house to get the water. But remember, God has already been speaking to this woman. A stranger is soon going to ask you for water, and you're to give it to him. As she retreats to get the water for Elijah, he calls after her, and by the way, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Now we think to ourselves, that must have taken some kind of gall. The poor woman barely has enough for herself and her son. And this total stranger asks her even for that. She answers, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a cruise. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Desperation. This woman is at the limits of life. She is in despair. Utter hopelessness grips her. She has no food in the house except a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a cruise. Death is at her doorstep, and now this stranger asks her for her last morsel of bread. This is a finely tuned scarcity. She's caught between the demands of ancient hospitality to welcome the stranger and the harsh reality of famine. She can only respond with fatalistic resignation. After she gathers a few sticks, her path is prescribed. A brusque chain of verbs leads down a predictable slope. I will go, she says. I will prepare. We will eat. And then we will die. It's outrageous. This prophet, so calloused, he can ask a widow for her last bite. The language of minimalism in this text intensifies this woman's desperation. She has only a little water, a morsel of bread, a handful of meal, a little oil, two sticks, just a little cake. These are the vocabulary of desperation and scarcity. We're at the margins with this woman. We're talking extremities. Surely, we think, after this woman's explanation of her dire circumstances, the prophet will relent and settle maybe for just the cup of water. 
But no, Elijah says, fear not, go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make for yourself and your son. Talk about faith put to the test. It strains all our sensibilities to be patient with the prophet's demand for this poor widow. Where is the milk of human kindness, not to mention the generous spirit of Yahweh? But wait, there is a promise attached to this seemingly unreasonable request. And again, it has to do with the word of the Lord. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal shall not be spent and the cruise of oil shall not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth, abundance within the scarcity. God's message to his people is a message of hope because when the rains come again, everything will be all right. There won't be any more thirst or hunger or death. People won't be without bread. Justice will rule in the land. Life will be good the way God intended it. The brooks will flow. The windows of heaven will open and the land will return to normal. We are only asked to be faithful until the coming of the rains. And so unavoidably, the metaphors begin to pile up and our humble story is stretched to new proportions, drought, thirst, and now the promise of the coming of the rains, abundance and scarcity side by side. This widow is given a command that calls for obedience and that also carries a promise. The command is to feed this stranger and the promise is <clears throat> that God will take care of her. God will keep his word. Theologian Emil Bruner from the last century said, Faith is obedience, literally nothing else at all. The widow obeyed. She gave the gift she couldn't afford. She anticipates another woman who appears centuries later during the last week of Jesus' life as he sits by the treasury in the temple and watches wealthy people make their lavish gifts. A poor woman steps up unobtrusively and puts her last meal into the offering, and Jesus is the only one who notices no gift in history is better remembered than hers. And again, the New Testament story echoes the old. The widow of Zarephath went into her house and did what Elijah had said. And we read that she and he and her household ate for many days from the tiny amount of food she possessed. The jar of meal was not spent. Neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Abundance. His name was Virgil Herrick. He was a faithful member of my former church for many years. 
Everybody liked Virgil. Ask him how he was doing, and the response was predictable. Better every day. He'd say, better every day. I visited him in the hospital on his deathbed. Virgil, what kind of a day are you having? Better every day, he croaked. Better every day. There were words from our story this morning that were dear to Virgil. Their promise was real. He quoted them to me more than once with tears in his eyes and a sob at his heart. They came from somewhere deep within him. The jar of meal was not spent, neither did the cruise of oil fail. I read a whole lot into it when he quoted these words from his hospital bed. A childhood in the depression, scarcity, frugality, dreams impossible, but always the hope, the promises of God, the coming of the rains. They're beautiful and poetic words. The jar of meal was not spent, neither did the cruise of oil fail. There's almost music in them. They call to mind the God of twelve baskets full, heaped up, shaken down, and running over. Here is the same God who opens heaven's windows and pours forth blessings that overflow. Against such a God, even drought and thirst recede. It was a quiet, undramatic miracle, but it meant life rather than death. The humble meal given in obedience was enough. The level of oil in the cruise did not go down. God was just as good as his promises when someone had faith enough to venture. That afternoon on the grassy hillside around the lake, nobody thought about food until the sun began to dip. The teacher's teaching had mesmerized the crowd throughout the day, but scarcity loomed as the day ran out, and suddenly thousands of people were hungry. So little to work with, seven loaves and a few fish. But then Jesus went to work on the verbs, and the words began to walk. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave and the good times rolled with more than enough. Jesus enacted the narrative of abundance and demonstrated the falseness of the narrative of scarcity. It's such a familiar note in the scripture. God asked men and women to take their stand on his promises and leave the rest to him. Malachi said, put me to the test. See if I'll not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that overflows. Put me to the test. We praise the example of this poor widow as well as the one Jesus noticed in the temple that day. The widow gave a gift that reason would have dictated she couldn't possibly afford, but she reminds us that giving as well as saving is the heart of the gospel. Obedience overcomes the drought of the world and the thirst of our own scratchy spirits. We're thankful for the mercy drops falling around us, but we long for the showers of blessing. When the rains come, the drought will be over. When the rains come, things will begin to grow and life becomes human. 
When the rains come, we can dream a new future. When the rains come, the kingdom can't be far. And things are better every day. Shall we pray? Gracious Lord, we thank you that we have been on the receiving end of so many good things and have every reason to be grateful. You have wrapped our lives in plenty and abundance. We see all around us a world threatened by scarcity. And we are asked, what is that in our hands? What do we have to use and to give and to share? We thank you for the lessons of Scripture. We thank you for the story of abundance that triumphs over everything else and gives us hope for whatever future is ahead of us. In this moment of commitment and renewal and dedication, help us to express our gratitude to you with a new level of commitment and to give thanks for your constant goodness in our lives. Amen. Abundance and scarcity. We probably all first think about these words in context of basic economics. We hear some versions of this every time we look at the news. We're programmed, living in our capitalistic society, to tie everything to markets of some kind. Supply and demand. One of the most abused measures of our economic health is the stock market, And while I'm happy when it's headed up because I have some retirement funds tied to it, the stock markets don't necessarily signal the health of our economy as a whole. We all know this. I appreciated the way Dr. Taylor articulated the common theme of scarcity and abundance that we find throughout the scriptures placing stories from the Hebrew scriptures over against the stories of Jesus' interactions with the people of his day opens our imaginations to our own interactions, the ones we will experience today. It hit me one day as I thought about the story of Jesus feeding the multitude on the plain. I had always heard that story as a miraculous multiplication of a young boy's few loaves and fishes. But it dawned on me that more unbelievable would be a situation where that many people had gathered and only one boy had food with him. I've come to understand that story in a different way than I used to. What was multiplied there on the plain wasn't necessarily the fish and the loaves. What was multiplied was a young boy's generosity. He gave what he had, and Jesus blessed that. And then everyone's eyes were opened, recognizing that no one need leave that hillside hungry on that day. 
And rather than seeing the scarcity, people recognized the abundance. And there was indeed baskets and baskets of leftovers. It's my hope that as I move through my life today and in the days to come, that I would not allow scarcity to close myself off from the potential blessings of abundance. I hope that my understanding of scarcity and abundance might be transformed from mere economics to faithfulness. I'm so happy that you chose to spend some time here with our podcast. If you found it helpful, please share it with your circles on social media and in your conversations. It's available on all the common platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Podbean. Give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send them to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. The downside to a podcast like this is the lack of feedback one receives from the audience. Larry and I received some feedback this past week, and it was so encouraging and keeps us doing what we're doing here. Thanks again to Larry and Linda Taylor, and until next time, this has been A Thin Place, and I'm Mike Young. Grace and peace.